Our Father, we come to commit to you our hour together, our, these next few minutes, that you will guide us in our study of your word and that you will speak to us and teach us those things which will enable us, Father, to walk faithfully before you and to be the men and women you have called us to be, true mirrors of the, of the light and the glory of God into a dark world. Father, I ask you to uh, bless as the word is being preached this morning in the second service and as lessons are taught throughout this property today and around the world as your word is proclaimed. Father, we ask that you will be glorified and that you will add to the kingdom this day such as you have called. And we'll thank you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the sixth chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 6, I would like to begin with verse 1. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Then you shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? And they said, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had severely dealt with them, they did not allow the people to go, and they, they did, and they departed. Now therefore take and prepare a new cart, and two milch cows, on which there has never been a yoke, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you, ha which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. And then send it away that it may go. And watch if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done this great, done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us, but it happened to us by chance. We began looking at this passage uh, last week, and we noted that this plague, because of the descriptions in the passage and the various allusions in the passage, it's very possible that this was a form of the bubonic plague. But whatever the case was, uh, it was obviously, at least to them, it seemed that the hand of God was upon the Philistines uh, because of their possession of the ark. And what's very interesting here is we read in the passage there in the verse 6 that the priests were actually saying to the, to the leaders of the Philistines, why are you acting like the Philistines, uh, uh, like the Egyptians, and like Pharaoh? Why are you hardening your hearts? Don't do that, because look what happened to Egypt. Very interesting, because those events had taken place 300 years before. For the Philistines to be aware of this so many years later, and uh, being a different people altogether is quite amazing. I think what it does is it helps us to understand how really wide the testimony of what God had done had spread even without there being a written word to spread it at that particular time. Where did the Philistine diviners get this idea on how they ought to send the ark back to Israel? 
we, we cannot really tell, of course. Uh, possibly God put the idea into their minds. And we know this. There are other passages of Scripture that tell us that God put thoughts in the hearts and minds of pagans to do certain things. But it's possible, of course, they conjured up this idea all by themselves, too. Well, we'll make this cart, and we'll put these cows, and we'll send it off uh, back to Israel. Whatever was the case, whether it was God's inspiration or simply their own thoughts, the purpose of the plan was to clearly demonstrate whether or not the God of Israel was as powerful as they actually feared that he was. They were to build a brand new cart. They weren't just to pick any old cart. Hey, dump the hay off that cart. We're going to use this cart. They had to build a brand new cart, specially designed to carry the ark. And they were to load the ark on this particular cart, as well as this box or this chest, into which they had placed the little replicas of the golden, uh, little golden replicas of mice and of the tumors, put these things inside this chest as this guilt offering, and to send it away. Now, what is interesting is how this ark is to be transported, how it is to be empowered. They were to take two nursing cows upon which a yoke had never been before. Cows that were at the moment nursing calves. This was, of course, going to be an ultimate test. Take the calves away from the cows and then expect the cows to just do their own thing and walk away from the calves and go off carrying the ark. Without divine intervention, the chances were absolutely zero <laughs> that these cows would abandon their nursing calves and go walking away into Israel, pulling this cart with nobody driving them, nobody urging them on, nobody leading them along the way. First of all, they had never been in a yoke before. Second of all, the mother instinct of a cow is very strong. And for them to pull in unison away from their calves, the Philistines knew that it just wouldn't happen without some kind of supernatural intervention. And that's the test. These cows, guided only by their instincts, or of course, as we would know, probably an angel of the Lord, uh, led them off into the land of Israel to Beth Shemesh. If this happened, then the Philistines would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the plagues were not coincidental with the capture of the ark. They were not, as we read in the passage, by chance, but they had actually been imposed upon the Philistines as a judgment from God because of their possession of the Ark of the Covenant of Israel. The pagan priests were well aware that in the years of their experience, Dagon, their God, and the gods that they had known of other, of other nations could never make cows do this. The cows just simply wouldn't do it. They would turn around and go where their calves were. They weren't going to drag this cart off away from their calves. It's totally contrary to nature. Uh, the famous German commentator Delich points out that these pagan priests were unwittingly setting the stage for Yahweh to clearly demonstrate his power and his glory to this pagan nation. Scripture tells us that God uses evil, God uses pagans to glorify his own name. And that's exactly what is happening. They set this test. God is going to fulfill the test. As a result, there's going to be a testimony to all of Philistia as to whom is really God. And what is interesting to me is to ask the question, what was the result of this test in the hearts of individual Philistines? The scripture does not tell us. 
But we have the testimony of Rahab, of course, the Canaanite, the Rahab, the harlot, harlot of, of the Canaanite city of Jericho, and how she became a believer in the God of Israel while living totally within a pagan environment. So, with the testimony of the power of the God of Israel, how many Philistines began to think in their hearts, Dagon's not God, <laughs> Yahweh must be God, and began to change in their uh, thoughts and in their, their desires of worship. We don't know. But I believe that the power of God is at work at all times. And although it's a New Testament statement where we read that God is not willing that any should perish, but I believe it's an eternal truth. And it was true in the Old Testament as it was in the New. So God worked, I think, in the hearts of those who were open enough to, to really seek the truth. And God would grant to them truth so that they could come to know him even in the midst of a pagan environment. Reading on in the sixth chapter of 1 Samuel at verse 10. Then the men did so, and they took the two milch cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up the calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went. And they did not turn aside to the right or to the left, and the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua the Beshemite and stood there where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the stone, the large stone. And the men of Bashemish offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. Verses 10 and 11 of this particular passage, we find that the Philistines' lords did exactly as their priests and their diviners had urged them to do. The, the priests had said, this is what you ought to do, and, and so the men set about to do exactly that. To the surprise of some, and of course to the relief of all, the cows did exactly the opposite of what the cows wanted to do. The cows wanted to go where their calves were, but the cows went straightway, we're told, towards Bethshemesh, out of their own land, into the land of Israel. Now it's nine miles between Ekron and Bethshemesh. But we know from the passage that the cows did not walk the full nine miles because they came into the valley that appears to have been east of Bethshemesh, west, I'm sorry, west of Bethshemesh. They came into the valley there where the men were harvesting wheat and they came to a stone and there they stopped. So they didn't go all the way to the town of Bethshemesh. So how far did they travel? Maybe six miles. We don't really know exactly how far they went. But what we are told is that the cows protested the whole time. Ooh, you know, we don't want to do this. You know, we want to go that way. Our calves are that way. But here they are, you know, going down the road, mooing and lowing and protesting the whole way. I don't know what that sounds like, but <laughs> some of us, I think, probably end up doing this whole thing. It's, it's, it reminds me, I've mentioned this to you before, the testimony of C.S. Lewis, who said, God drugged me kicking and streaming into the kingdom. <laughs> He didn't want to go, but God drew him in. They were protesting an unseen force. 
Now, we don't know whether it was simply an angel or the Spirit of God himself who were directing these cows, who was directing these cows, but the cows were going against their will straight away. And the scripture says they didn't turn to the right and they didn't turn to the left. They didn't even stop to eat any grass along the way. They just kept right on going, heading where they didn't even know to where they were going. And of course, they were heading to their own death, actually. As an act of honor to God, the Philistine lords accompanied the cart to the border of Israel. And there at the border they stood and they watched as the cart continued on down the valley towards Beth Shemesh. I can think that how relieved these men were to see the ark out of their land and the great hope that they had in their hearts now that with the ark out of the land, maybe the plague will end and our people will stop dying as they were dying by the thousands from this plague. Well, it, there's absolutely no doubt that the Israelites knew that plague was ravaging Philistia. Uh, after all, news traveled in those days just as it does now. Didn't have on-site television, you know, but you had word of mouth. And uh, so the people in Israel had heard of the plague and, and that it was ravaging the cities of the Philistines. And you can be sure the Israelites were not terribly uh, sorry about the whole thing. They were probably actually glad because the Philistines were deadly enemies of Israel. And I think many of them probably believe that it was a result of the judgment of God because the Philistines possessed the Ark of the Lord of Israel. We're told that the, the Ark, the, that the cart was being pulled into this valley here towards the city of Beth Shemesh. And uh, the men of Beth Shemesh were out harvesting wheat. That tells us that it was June because wheat is harvested in June in Israel. And so they were out there. It's the beginning of summer. The days are warming. Um, the, the cart is coming. And the men, we're told, were glad to see it coming. And I think some of them were not all that surprised. <laughs> Certainly the Philistines will wise up one day and, and get rid of the ark. And uh, the most wise thing to do, of course, would be to send it back to Israel. What is fascinating about this is it says the cows pulled the cart right up to a large stone there in the field and stopped stopped dead in their tracks. That's as far as they went. And apparently it was a fairly good size stone because of what we read in this uh, account uh, occurred there. The Levites who were in the area, and certainly amongst the men of, of uh, Beth Shemesh, you're out there working with some Levites. And so they came over to do their task of lifting the ark off of the cart uh, with the proper manner of the poles that are inserted into the rings and the way by which God had ordained it was to be carried, lifting it off the cart and placing it up on this large stone. What that teaches us, I think, it doesn't specifically teach us this, but I think it's implied that the poles were still there. The ark was carried into battle, I believe, by the poles that were inserted through the rings and was carried properly at that time. And when it was captured, the uh, Philistines themselves probably wisely carried it by the poles also and moved it wherever they did. We don't know that for sure, but uh, Gordon Wagge uh, mentioned after class last time that it's very probable that the presence of God was not with the ark in the sense that it would be inside of Israel at the time that the Philistines had it. And so they could have probably touched it and other things without any harm coming. We have to get away from the idea, of course, this talisman idea that an object is in and of itself somehow specially holy. It's only holy if God makes it holy. It's only holy if God's presence is with it. Otherwise, it is not holy. It's just mundane. It's just secular. And I, I believe that's probably true, even though it's not specifically said so. We do know that the presence of the Ark in Philistia, however, was a very damning thing to the country. 
and God's presence was there in the sense that his hand was heavy upon Philistia because they uh, wrongfully had the Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel. What the men of Bethshemesh did with the help of the Levites was to chop the cart up and make firewood out of it and then to sacrifice the two cows that had drawn the cart to the rock. Now, some would say, how sad. <laughs> They've got calves back there. We're dealing, of course, with, ho with a holy God, and God is always right and just and fair, and I think he provided for the calves one way or another. Uh, the Levites sacrificed uh, these two cows as a burnt offering to the Lord, as a sin offering, first of all, for having exposed the ark to capture carrying it out of the tabernacle at Shiloh against the command of God and carrying it off into battle as if it were some kind of a good luck charm and then losing it. And then, of course, a Thanksgiving offering for the return of the ark after this seven-month hiatus when it was off in the land of the Philistines. The cart and the cows had been used for a sacred purpose. Therefore, they would not be used for a mundane purpose within Israel anyway. And it seemed that the, the, the using of the cart for the firewood and the cattle for the offering would be the way by which God would be honored. We're told that the Philistine lords, now it, it, the, the passage seems to indicate that the actual prince of each of the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis were standing there at the border and they watched the cart go down into the valley and off towards Beth Shemesh and they saw it come up to the rock and they saw everything that happened including the sacrifice of the animals there and they were satisfied that they had done what they needed to do and as they returned they hoped that Yahweh and of course in their minds they would think was appeased because that's the way pagans think of their God you must appease your God but that God was satisfied and that hopefully they would that now see the lifting of the plague from off the shoulders of the cities of Philistia and we assume from the passages that that is that that is what happened now the major question that arises here is how did these Levites dare to make a burnt offering on a rock that was not the altar at Shiloh before the tabernacle? How did they dare make an offering somewhere else than at the sanctuary of the Lord? Let me read a passage from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteron Deuteronomy 12, beginning at verse 10. When you cross the Jordan, and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security. Then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and, your con and the contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place which you see. But in the place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes, there you shall offer bur your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. As you probably know, and we studied as we went through the earlier books, Offerings were made to the Lord in many places by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others. But once God had established the tabernacle, the offering was to be made at the tabernacle and not on all the other spots where historically offerings had been made. How could they do this? How could they just out of the enthusiasm of the moment do something that might seem to be against the word of God? Well, first of all, 
I think we have to believe that wherever the ark was, that was the true sanctuary of the Lord. In the words of Delich again, he says, the ark of the covenant was the throne of the gracious presence of God before which sacrifices were really offered at the tabernacle. In other words, it isn't the tabernacle, it's the ark that makes it the place, the sanctuary at which an offering should be made. Secondly, though, and this is very interesting, uh, some commentators believe that the sanctuary at Shiloh may have been destroyed by the Philistines, possibly as a follow-up to their great victory there at Ebenezer. This belief is primarily based not on this passage or the book of 1 Samuel. It's actually based on references made, first of all, by Jeremiah. Let me read uh, a short passage from the seventh chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah verse tw seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 12, Jeremiah says this, God says this, of course, through Jeremiah, but go now to my place, which was, which was in Shiloh. God is saying, go, go to Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And then there's, there actually is another passage later in Jeremiah that says basically the same thing. And then in the 78th Psalm, Asaph, the psalmist of this particular psalm, writes these words uh, in Psalm 78, beginning at verse 60. So that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hands of the adversary. He also delivered his people with the sword and was filled with the wrath, with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured their young men, and their virgins had no wedding songs. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows could not weep. So from these two passages, we have what seems to be clear inference to the fact that the sanctuary at Shiloh was destroyed. Was it destroyed at this time by the Philistines? Uh, was it destroyed in some other activity? We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that two century archaeologists who have dug on the site of Shiloh have discovered that it was burned to the ground in the 11th century. And that's approximately the time period we are talking about here. So from archaeological evidence and from scriptural evidence, it seems very probable that the story at Shiloh was destroyed. One of the problems, though, that some raise, if that is true, is that there are later passages in Samuel for particular, in particular where which appear to imply that the tabernacle was still in use, but at other places, such as at Nob and at Gib uh, Gibeon. And if that is so, how could the tabernacle be in use elsewhere if it had been destroyed at Shiloh? And the answer seems to be that possibly when Shiloh was, was destroyed, the tabernacle itself of the original building rather than in the God who empowered the worship that was centered in the building. There are some, however, who believe that Shiloh was abandoned by the Israelites on purpose because they viewed it as cursed because of the vileness of Hophni and Phinehas. Remember the two sons of Eli who, who even practiced fornication there on the, on the very temple grounds, tabernacle grounds. And because of the sudden and, and, and dramatic death of Eli there and then of course because of the loss of the ark to the Philistines. Well, whatever the case may be, it seems that there's, there's no proscription of the Jews for having made this sacrifice here at 
shouldn't call them Jews, the Hebrews at this point. No prescription for making this sacrifice here on this great stone. Well, let's read on at verse 17, the last few verses of this chapter, chapter 6. These, and these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both of the fortified cities and of the country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Beshemite. And he struck down some of the men of Beshemish, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men. And the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beshemish said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Is that incredible or what? We have in this passage, first of all, a recounting of the guilt offering that was being offered by the Philistines to Yahweh. And it tells us of the five golden replica of the tumors that were placed in this chest. And it names the five Philistine cities, the main cities of the Pentapolis of Philistia. This is only the second time in Scripture that the five cities are all listed together. Sometimes they're named separately, but here they're all listed together. And if you go over there to Israel today, you can walk on the sites of all five of the cities. Some of them, of course, are a little bit uh, uncertain. Gath, for example, there's a couple of sites. They're not really positive which site was actually Gath. But Gaza, of course, we all know where Gaza was, right? It's still Gaza today in a broader area, of course. And uh, Ashkelon and Ashdod and Ekron. Dr. Walmark and I have walked through the uh, park there at Ashkelon and looking at the remaining evidences of, of this city and, of course, later construction that occurred on the site, even the days of the Greeks and of the Romans. But what we're also told here is that they sent replicas of the mice. And we're told in this passage, originally the first passage says they were to make five replicas of the mice and include it. But the passage is spoken of in such a way here to, to indicate it's possible that not only were five replicas sent from each of those five cities, but that, that the smaller country villages that weren't unfortified wanted to be sure they got on, in on this action. And so they all sent a copy of a golden mouse too. They wanted to make sure they were covered in, in this whole thing. And so uh, this box full of golden mice, you know, uh, came uh, along with the Ark of the Covenant. Furthermore, we discover in this passage that the large stone in the field of Joshua the Beshemite where the ark was placed. We're, we're told that the ark was put on top of this rock and sac the sacrifice of the two cattle were also, was also made on this rock. So it had to be a fairly large rock. And, and we're told that it continued, that stone continued to be a witness to the very day in which this passage was written, probably by Samuel himself, who knows, several decades later, uh, that this rock was still viewed as a witness of what God had done a witness that God had brought the ark back into the land from which it had been stolen by the Philistines. And although we know nothing else about this Joshua the Beshemite, his name is noteworthy simply because he owned the field in which was the rock. What we come to, of course, is the very sad tragedy described here at the end. Uh, you, know, you think, 
whoa, you know, the Ark of the Covenant has brought this, this, this destruction on the land of Philistia. And the Jews, the Israelites were saying, yeah, they deserve it. But look what happens to them. Look what happens to them. The homecoming of the Ark is dampened. The joy is crushed to the point where the men of Bashemish are saying, what are we going to do with the Lord? God's instructions for the handling of the ark were very clear. Let me go back to Numbers chapter 4. This is all the way back to the time when the tabernacle itself was being moved and Aaron was still the chief priest. In uh, Numbers chapter 4, verse 5, we read this. And when the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. They were to fold up the veil and put it over the Ark. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert poles in it. So the Ark wasn't to be transported just out there in the broad daylight. Here's the Ark with the cherubim sitting right up there. It was covered with three layers of material. And then down to verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they may not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. And then over in verse 20, And they shall not go in to see the holy objects, even for a moment, lest they die. So God made it very clear these were holy objects set-apart objects, objects that were not part of mundane existence. So what we read is that the ark was to be covered. The, the ark was not even to be gazed upon, let alone touched, and to be opened. I think what we have to understand in this passage is this was not a matter of innocent curiosity. Oh, I wonder if the stone tablets which Moses brought down from Mount Sinai are still inside there. Let's open it up and see. It was an act of flagrant disobedience to the Word of God, and it was a violation of His holiness. I think they were, you know, they did want to see, was Aaron's rod that budded still there? You know, these different objects that had been included over the time, were, were they still there? But in so doing, they were trivializing the function of the ark. Trivializing the function of the ark. The ark represented the throne of God in Israel. And nothing impure could stand in the presence of the consuming fire of Yahweh. And these violators were told, these violators were told, were struck dead instantly. I don't know if this reminds you of anything, but as, as I was studying this, re this reminded me of something that we studied a few years ago in uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 10. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 10, verse the first three verses says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, I mean, these are the sons of the high priest, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all people, I will be honored. The God of Israel was not like the pagan gods who had to beg and plead that they might be honored. 
He was able to defend his own honor, tragically, often, because of the folly of people whose minds are, built, are, are geared towards trivializing everything. And, and we, I think, sometimes today stand in danger of this too. If trivializing the faith, of trivializing worship, of moving it to something trite and light, and, and, and treating God as if he's some kind of a, a buddy you can just sling, you know, sling your arm around and walk down the road with, rather than understanding, yes, he, he is our friend and, and he is our uh, sticks closer than a brother, but he is the almighty, holy God, creator of the universe. And you and I in the flesh are still walking around with a lot of junk hanging on. You know, we're impure. And therefore, uh, we need to be sure that we treat God as holy in all that we do, especially relative to worship. And of course, everything we do is supposed to be worship. Did God actually slay 50,070 people? That's a lot of people. Talk about dead bodies everywhere. Now, the association, it's, it's a strange way this passage is written. Um, the association of 50,000 with the 70, they're written separately. 50,000, 70 is written first, then 50,000 is written second in the passage. The association of the two numbers together goes all the way back as, as far as they've been able to trace it, at least to the Septuagint. So we know it goes back at least 2,000 years, this, this combination of numbers. But the wording is so unique, unlike any other reference to multiple numbers in Scripture, that most commentators believe that the number slain was 70 and that the 50,000 was, was put there for meanings that we can't quite fully understand today. Some say, offer that the insertion was to emphasize the holiness of God. And what they were saying was there were 70 elders of Israel who were such great men and such good men that each one was worth 50,000 men. And, and, and yet they were unworthy to stand in the presence of God. That's how holy God is. Well, I don't know if that flies with you. I, I, you know, that God is holy, yes. But it's possible that people came from all over to see the ark and that they flocked from surrounding tribal areas to see the ark and that although probably only 70 conspired to actually open the ark and look in it, the fire of God went out throughout the whole crowd seeking those that had come tritely, lightly, out of curiosity only and had no reverence for the God of Israel and that they too were slain in a great slaughter. The reason that this is questioned is the fact that Bethshemesh was a small town. And the whole tribe in which Bethshemesh was located didn't have 50,000 men. So where, where in the world could all of these people have come from? Well, we don't know how long the ark was there. And certainly they could have gathered over a period of time and ran into this situation. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the scripture at all, of course. But we have to think of the possibilities here of how God worked in this situation. And of course, the truth that comes out of this is, God says, I will be holy, I am holy, and you will treat me as holy. It's clear that this event made a great impression on the people and the remaining men, because they said, who can stand before Yahweh, this holy God? Did they learn their lesson? Absolutely, they learned their lesson. This was so frightening to them that like the Philistines, and that's a terrible comparison, isn't it? Like the Philistines, they could only think of how they could get rid of the presence of God. How do we get God out of here? He's too dangerous to have around. They said, to whom shall he go up from us? To whom shall he go up from us? Rather than seeking purification, that they might stand 
before the holy God in his imputed righteousness to them, they thought, how do we get rid of God? Obedience to God requires a level of commitment and a level of faith that many do not have the desire to seek. Commitment to God does not just fall on us. We aren't just one day committed to God where the day before we weren't. Commitment to God is a thing that we build into our lives through concerted effort and desire to be committed. I am not saying salvation comes from effort. That comes as a free gift from God, not by works, lest any man should boast. But how do we, how do we strengthen our commitment and, our, and how does our faith build? It, fill, it builds because we choose to seek God and we choose to walk with Him and we choose to be obedient. Obedience does not come easily as you and I, I think, will quickly attest to because we have our own flesh which says, no, you don't want to do that, you want to do this. You have the world and the devil also drawing us away. Serving God requires that we deny our fleshly desires and nobody who is honest would say that that is an easy thing. Let me read these words from Matthew in closing today. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That takes concerted effort, commitment, and desire. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And of course, what that means is save his life for his own purposes and for his own pleasures. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, these men gave their lives because they were not seeking to glorify God or to know Him. And I think that's the great message that comes out of this tragic passage, is that we need to treat God as holy because He is holy. And uh, in our society today, where God is ignored, where God is, 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 is trivialized, where God is flagrantly violated in all that He says, we have to really be a greater example than ever before of what it means to treat God as holy. Well, we'll look on into the uh, uh, next chapter next week.